I'm going to be touching on two four-letter words tonight, repentance and obedience. I realize that they are not technically four-letter words, but very few churches want to preach about them, and even fewer people want to hear about them. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There are two different Greek words used in the New Testament for the word repent. Metanoia is primarily used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, and it means to think differently, i.e. to reconsider, to morally feel compunction. It literally means to change one's mind or purpose. And in the New Testament, it always involves a change for the better. It is a change of choice and a lifestyle change. The second word used in the New Testament is metamelami. And it's used in 2 Corinthians and in Hebrews. And it means to care afterwards or to regret a particular instance. So you have one, metanoia, that is a change of choice. And then the other, metamelami, which is an emotional response. The more frequent form that's used in the Bible is the change of mind. Thayer's Greek lexicon says to amend your behavior with an abhorrence of one's past sins, to conduct oneself with a heart change. And we all know or should realize that there is a difference between saying you're sorry because you mean it and saying you're sorry because you got caught. Uh, you've got 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The King James Version, not all versions have this, but in the King James Version, they say that Judas repented in Matthew 27.3. The word repent for Judas there is the, the metamelomai. He regretted his particular instance. He didn't change his mind about who God was. I truly believe that if he had changed his mind about who Jesus was and accepted him as the Son of God and the Savior, he would be sitting in heaven right now. But that's not the repent that they used. And I think that's why I try to go into that Greek, because depending on the version you use, you know, it could mean something different in each situation. So we must come to a heartfelt repentance to truly turn our will and our lives over in obedience to God. For the Jews, repenting required changing their minds about who Jesus is, the Son of God, the ultimate and final atoning sacrifice for all sin. It meant abandoning the traditions and the customs that they had become dependent on for forgiveness and reconciliation. For Gentiles, I believe this involves not only accepting who Jesus is and what he has done for us, but changing how we feel about and view sin. Abandoning the temporary desires of this world for his. For it is by faith through grace and acknowledgement of Jesus as the Son of God, Savior and Redeemer, that we have our ticket to heaven and an invitation to the wedding. Luke 5.32 Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
And Luke 15, 7 goes on to say, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So repentance is a big deal. It's a big deal in heaven. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to our salvation. We need to change our mind about this world um, and turn our eyes back to Christ. Once we repent, we change our mind and turn away from the sinful world and toward him, we become a new creature with a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And then God even gives us this new heart for Ezekiel 36.26. A new heart also I give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. So the new spirit that was provided to us helps us to grow and mature spiritually. John 16, 13, how be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth and he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear that he shall speak and he will shew you things to come. I've got it fascinating. Jesus does something very similar in John 12, 49, 50 that he speaks. He just speaks what he hears from the father. So Jesus and the spirit both are speaking to us what the Father is telling us. And, and they only speak what he says. This guidance that, be, that is provided to us begins preparing us, transforming us, helping us remove any attachments we have to this world that may be separating us or thwarting from us, us from hearing from God. And the Bible isn't quite about sin. It says, it says quite a bit about sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in that big long list, note the buts. But we are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 says, Six things doth the Lord hate, Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. So he just gave us this big laundry list to sin. Proverbs gives us seven things he detests. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. James 4.17 goes on to say, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. So humans like to place sin in a hierarchy. However, God, in God's eye, a sin is a sin. Um, to put that in perspective, I have a friend, Stacy, told me once that the foot of the cross is level. 
We have a tendency to compare ourselves to other people. I'm not that bad. I would never do that. You know, insert your own justification for whatever you want to put here. I know I've done that. You know, but our standard is Jesus. It's not other people. And he sets that bar really, really high. Praise the Lord, we are seen through his perfection and by the covering of his blood. I think many professing Christians are very quick to judge that first Corinthians list while attempting to justify the things that the Lord detests or overlooking what the Lord is showing them personally. Matthew 7, 3, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Um, I have a friend who, we, when we talk about repentance, she frequently likes to say that Jesus said, go and sin no more. But repenting doesn't mean that you're not going to ever sin again. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And it may be curious to just to go see how many times Jesus said, go and sin no more. Do you know how many times Jesus said, go and sin no more in the Bible? Twice. Jesus said, go and sin no more, only twice in the Bible, to the woman who is about to be stoned for adultery and to the man at the Bethesda pool. Um, all the other times Jesus healed someone, he said, your faith has healed you. Every other time. Those are the only two times he said this. So why do you think these two situations, the adulteress and the man at the Bethesda pool, the lame man who was waiting for the stirring of the water, why do you think in these two instances he said he chose to say go and sin no more? Um, you know, my thoughts when studying this and the story of the adulteress being stoned is in John 8. The punishment for adultery was stoning. Um, the Lord knows the path that our choices are going to lead us down, either to negative earthly consequences or to missing out on our heavenly rewards. Perhaps this was a precautionary, protective warning for her to change her ways. He knew if she went back to her old behavior, like Kitty had said, if, it, if this was a kind of a half first maybe, that she was going to be put to death. If she went back to this behavior, he wasn't there to save her the next time. Hebrews 12.6, God chastens those he loves. You know, if the Lord tells you to put something down or away, there's a reason for it. It may not be only for your good, but it'll be for his glory. And when we're made aware of where we fall short, we should weigh the consequences of not heeding that warning, whether it be to play out the earthly consequences or to lose out on those heavenly rewards. Also note, he did not let the crowd preparing to stone her go away without a warning. He looked at them and said, Yet ye who be without sin cast that first stone, and not a single stone was thrown. Okay, so now let's look at the man at the, at the pool in John 5. What was this man's sin? And I've read a lot of commentaries about this, and all of them are like, well, whatever it was, must have been terrible. And I'm like, it could have been, the man had been laying there for 38 years. He probably wasn't fornicating. He probably wasn't an adulterer. You know, all of these things you think about as bad since he'd been laying there for 38 years. When I was reading those commentaries, I'm like, I just... I don't know, and the Spirit dropped something else into me, and I wanted to just share this with you. It, the Bible does not specifically say what this man's sin was. 
But based on what Jesus and the man say, I have a theory. He had laid there for 38 years, misplacing his hope in the stirring of the water and that someone would carry him to it. Surely the word of the miracles Jesus had been performing had made their way to this pool. Yet when the Messiah was standing in front of him, asking if he were to be made whole, the man didn't recognize him. He didn't acknowledge him. Rather, wallowing in self-pity, he made himself a victim of his circumstances. Though paraphrasing, this is the gist of what he was saying. Oh, poor pitiful me, I'm laying here when the water stirs. Everybody runs over to me and nobody will carry me down to the water. Now compare that with the woman who had so much faith, she just needed to touch the hem of his cloak. She didn't even need him to look at her. She just needed to touch the hem. She had so much faith. Or the centurion who just said, say it be done and it will be done. I think what Jesus is talking about here is unbelief. So see, but that's, a, that's only two times. That's the second time he said, go and sin no more. So when Jesus sees him later in the temple, John 5, 14, he says, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come into thee. Jesus had made him whole, not only physically, but spiritually. Matthew 12, 43-45, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places and findeth none. And then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, garnished. Then he goeth and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be into this wicked generation. So it's not enough that we be emptied of sin. We have to fill the house. We can't just empty it out. We have to fill the house with the Holy Spirit so the spirits that are cast from us have no home to return to. Jesus was admonishing the man to believe and have faith in him. Just cleaning up your life without filling it with the Holy Spirit leaves a void for Satan to enter back in and create a foothold stronger than before. Repentance, changing your mind, not only turning back to the Lord, prioritizing and placing him in his rightful spot as number one in your life, but away from sin and how we view sin. And I have heard in my spirit more than one time, focus on the Savior, not the sin. And then I came across a Socrates quote that said, The secret of change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. If we are constantly focusing on the old man, we cannot move forward to build the new one. Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I count myself not to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things that were, which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And that was Paul. Paul had done some pretty bad things. And he knew. He, could, he was a new man. He was a new creature. We just talked about new creature, new heart. He doesn't look back. He looks forward. Um, and it reminds me, and this is not a biblical parable, but you all will know this, many of you I'm sure know it, of the Cherokee. 
So one evening, an old Cherokee told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside people. He said, my son, the battle between two wolves inside all of us. One is evil. It is anger, envy, jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The flesh. The other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. Spirit. So those are the two wolves who are fighting in us, the flesh and the spirit. And it said, um, the grandson thought about it for a minute. He asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? And the Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. So what we feed is what's going to grow. And not making sin our primary focus does not mean that we ignore it. Um, it means it should not be the center of our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Romans 6, 6 through 7. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. We died with Christ. We are free. First uh, Corinthians fifteen seventeen. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Move on to Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If you were raised with Christ, so we died with him, we raised with him. And it says, you know, we're not in our sins. We were raised with him. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We walk where our eyes are looking and where our feet are pointed. We shouldn't take our eyes off of Jesus for one second. Think Peter sinking. God puts that to me all the time. When you take your eyes off me, you sink. When you take your eyes off me, you sink. I have that visual in my head all the time. Um, it is all about him. And my personal experience has been the Holy Spirit doesn't let me ignore it, uh, nor does he let me stay in it. I actually came up with this scripture in half an hour before I came in here, and I was like, oh, I got to add it in. 1 John 3, 9 says, Whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. The Spirit doesn't let me even, I'm focusing on the Savior, I'm not focusing on sin, but the Spirit doesn't let me just stay in it. He doesn't let me ignore it. He quickens me when I fall short, prompting me to change my behavior, my attitude, my speech, whatever it is that is out of alignment with God. We are priests and kings. We are children of the Most High, and we should behave as such. We, and we have the comfort of knowing we are sealed until the day of redemption. Per Ephesians 4.30. However, we've started talking about this recently too. Per Romans 2.6. We will all be judged by our deeds. Now, how can we claim to love the Lord, yet continue behavior that is opposite of the word? If we are sinning, yet do not feel the pull of the Spirit to change our mind and to turn it around, or are choosing to ignore the prompting, can we honestly say that we are walking and abiding in Christ? 
And I think there are a lot of people who are not born of God. I think there are a lot of Christians who believe they are saved, but they are not born again. Uh, you know, if we're sinning, we don't feel it. You know, we're not we're not walking and abiding in Him. And I'm not, you know, there are people that I, I'm sure everybody has moments where they're just not the best. But the Lord is working on me with that to recognize there are rules and there are things that I have to go through. And even if I don't agree with them, me being ugly about it is not making it better for anybody. Galatians 5, 16, 17. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these things are contrary to one another, so that ye cannot do the things you would. Meaning, if you're walking in the Spirit, you're not going to do the things you want to do. You're going to do the things God wants you to do. You're not going to walk in your own will. You're going to be walking in His will. And when you walk with God and in His will for you, works aren't work. They're blessings. They're blessings for you and they're blessings for others. God wants to be our heart's desire. He wants all of it. He says it all the time. You start looking at how many times it says all of your heart in the Bible. It's a lot. What are you pursuing? Is God a priority in that pursuit? Even a thought? Who or what are you serving? And what is your focus? God should be in every single, and he wants to be in every single bit of that. Which brings me to my second four-letter word, obedience. I don't like the word. No, obey is a four-letter word. I don't like it. It takes me back to my childhood, like I'm finally stopping my feet and resisting things. I'll do what I want the way I want to do it. And obedience seems to be a very hot topic and a trigger for a lot of people. You have on one side, people who believe obedience is required for salvation. On the other side, you have people who believe there's no need to be obedient at all. My study has led me to understand that the answer actually lies in the middle. Obedience is not required for salvation, nor is it required to remain saved. Salvation is a free gift. And when we are born again, we are sealed until the day of redemption. However, obedience is necessary. Obedience is necessary to see God's glory to do his will, and to allow his purpose to flow through us and come to fruition. Obedience should be a natural result, an outpouring for such a precious gift. A desire to honor a loving father who wants nothing but the best for us. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope, and a future. God is not a God of obligation. That is why he gave us free will. Um, his desire is that our desire will be to love him, be obedient, and pleasing to him. But we get to choose. Each one of us are responsible for our own spiritual condition. It is an individual personal relationship. Jude 1, 20-21, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, 
looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. We have a responsibility to the covenant Jesus made by dying on that cross for us. Um, we have a part to play. Philippians 2.12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We are to work out, exercise. Think about physical. We're supposed to exercise our, our salvation, not just sit around and do nothing. Seeking the kingdom first and its righteousness. As Brian said a few Sundays ago, our lives should be drawing people to Jesus. And we may be the only Bible some people read. We are not to do this, we're not going to do this perfectly, nor does God expect us to. He does expect us to at least try. Paul goes on to explain that it is God. Um, that works in us to create the desire and strength to do so because it pleases him. He gives us the desire to commit ourselves to him and his ways. Obedience requires faith and trust. I've heard that if you know where you're going, you aren't following the spirit. And most of the time, we are to follow when we don't understand or don't know where we're going, but we can trust that he will show us the way. From a devotional that I read when I was preparing this, God wants to teach us how to tune our heart, which is our receiver, to hear what he has to say. John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. God's voice is the conversation the Holy Spirit has with our heart, our mind, will, and emotions. And that was the end of the, the devotional. Um, obedience is a form of worship. I've heard that heartfelt trying is obedience. We are new creatures, children of promise. We have such a gift in the grace and mercy of God. Why would we not want to honor him? Why do you chastise your children? Expect them to listen to you and be obedient. Because you love them. Why? You want to teach them morals and values. It keeps them safe. And he's our father. So typically in our own life experiences, because it's because of our own life experiences, we are attempting to prevent them from making the same mistakes we did, trying to keep them from harm, teaching them value and morals. If we disobey our earthly parents, do they throw us into a fiery furnace? No, of course they don't. Now, they may let you suffer the consequences of those choices, learn our lessons, correct us to get us back on the right path, but they don't disown us. They also don't reward us. Okay, Matthew 7, 9, 11, which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is a good, good Father. No matter how far you may wander, he will always take you back. But we have to turn back, and we have to come home. Think prodigal son. 
That being said, we will all be judged, tested and judged on our works, period. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. Every man's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it, and it here is referring to the foundation of Jesus Christ, if you go back to verse 11, it's talking about the foundation of Jesus Christ. So if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so through the fire. Um, and we had talked about this the other day, the, a couple weeks ago. We were talking about wood, hay, stubble. You know, how are your, when you're at the Bema seat, we are going to be judged at the Bema seat. When you put your works in front of him, we have to answer for everything we've done in the flesh. What is it going to, when the fire burns it, is it going to turn into precious stones? Is it going to turn into ash? That's what we need to be working on here and now. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. If we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. We are called to mature spiritually, to be fishers of men, uh, a quote I mentioned before, I know I've mentioned it in a Bible study before that Charles Stanley has said, is that we are to be imitators of, of Jesus in character, conduct, and conversation. And I love that. I have it written down, the three C's. Character, conduct, and conversation. We are to be set apart from this world. This is not our home. Ask yourself, have you transferred your citizenship to heaven? The call for us to be obedient is all throughout the New Testament. The Spirit dwelling within us gives us the ability to be obedient uh, and being obedient to God's will. Uh, so what does the Bible say about God's will? There's actually quite a bit. I only wrote down six. First uh, Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So we are to always give thanks. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 16. I'm on the struggle bus with this one, y'all. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to a king as supreme or to governors, as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free yet not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. You're, you don't get just have a license to sin. I don't know a single newborn Christian that thinks that they can just go do whatever they want to do. It is not a cloak to cover maliciousness. That's not what this is. We are to be imitating Christ. Show that we are his servants. First uh, Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, 
that ye should abstain from fornication. Now, I would recommend just reading all of 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a pretty good, pretty good chapter. Um, Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. For the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to who be glory forever and ever. Amen. So our submission to God, that passive obedience of submitting to his will, he does all that. When we fully submit in obedience to him, he does the work. We just have to be open to it to accept it. Micah 6, 8. He has, show, has shewed thee, O man, what is good. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? And then 2 Peter 3, 9, which I mentioned earlier, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us were, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Another was that following is from another devotional I read. It said, if you desire to be fruitful and prosperous in all your ways, obedience is the key. Could it be that you're missing out on opportunities to grow, thrive, expand, or gain clarity for your life because of your lack of obedience to his word? What has God instructed you to do that you still have not done? Who is being affected by your disobedience? This isn't to condemn you. This is an opportunity for all of us to get it right and say yes to whatever God asks from us daily. Not when we feel like it or when it seems good to us. And it can be small in your eyes, but God still requires your yes. Even with your yes, it is important to understand that you are not doing it in your own strength, but through the grace that he supplies and multiplies when you submit to him. Many people think obedience is a big thing, and sometimes it is. You need to lay down the big things in your life that are causing destruction. Tells the adulteress, hey, go and sin no more. She really needs to lay that down. She's not doing herself any good. It's not good for her self-esteem. If she gets caught, she's going to get stoned. You need to lay that down. That's a pretty big thing. But most of the times, it's, it's not big. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So we've talked about edify, I think, over the past couple of weeks, and I looked it up in Thayer's for this particular verse, and it says, to promote growth in Christian wisdom, affection, grace, virtue, holiness, and blessedness. So it may be that you need to lay down something big so that you're blameless in the eyes of man. It might not it might not be any big deal. It might not be a big sin, but somebody else might see you doing it, and then your testimony, your witness has just gone out the door. As disciples and ministers, we are held to a higher standard. We just are. And we're held to a higher standard. God knows what we know. We, we said something. What was that scripture we mentioned last week? Right, do, right, to whoever much is given, much is required. So the more we learn, 
He's expecting a little more out of us, but that's what we want to draw in. We want to get closer to him. Um, and then most of the time, like I said, it's a quiet suggestion. It's not a big thing. It's turn here, go to lunch with so-and-so, go talk to her. That was Barbara's testimony shared um, at the end of the 930 service on February 5th. She might have shared it at the 11 o'clock service too about a girl that was admitted to the hospital for an overdose. And it's reported, and it's on our Facebook page for February 5th. If you all didn't see it, if you're watching online, you can go back, all of our things are recorded. I would recommend you go back and listen to it. And then I wanna end this with my own testimony, and I've yet to do this without crying. I have practiced this, and I've shared this a lot. I've practiced this, so we might make it through it, we'll see. Um, I do have a more detailed testimony on YouTube, but for time's sake, I have honed it down. So I've written it. I could speak it, but if I do, then I'm going to derail, so I'm going to read it. I am an independent consultant for Scentsy. It's a fragrance company. And soon after I was baptized by the Spirit in 2020, I was working with a customer of mine who loved the Lord. She would frequently tell me to pray for her because Jesus was all she had. And to be honest, she was a lot of work. Um, she had managed to ostracize herself from friends and family with her behavior. And looking back, I think she was just lonely. But she also loved Scentsy. And she kept telling me her apartment was so dark and she needed light. So I spent 30 minutes or so with her on the phone discussing what warmers would give her the most light in her room. And she placed a rather large order, which I honestly felt guilty about taking because she was on a fixed income. But she was so insistent that I took it. I knew she was excited to get it, so when I saw it had shipped, I texted her on a Thursday to let her know. She didn't respond, but I didn't think much about it. The next day, I texted her again with an update. Again, no reply. God had placed on my heart to prepare some goodie bags for several of my clients, Pam, this lady, being included. So on that Saturday morning, I got up, I prepared a bag with some extra bars of wax um, that I had on hand since I knew she would like and called instead of texting to see if she would be home so I could deliver. The phone went straight to voicemail. I thought, well, that's odd. So I called a friend who had introduced us and asked her when the last time she saw or spoke to her was. She said, oh, the previous Sunday, but not to worry about it. That's about not answering. She just does that. I asked what the name of her apartment complex was. Um, my friend gave it to me, and I called the office telling them I was worried about a resident. I told them who it was, and she said, yeah, she does that a lot, and we don't do wellness checks. Call the police. So I called the police, and they sent someone out. I asked if they would please call me after they checked, and when they called, he said nobody had answered the door. He couldn't hear anyone inside, and the blinds were closed, so he couldn't see in. I begged him to try again. He said he would and asked if I knew anyone who could grant access into the apartment. I did not. So back to the front office I go. They were again less than hopeful, but said they would look at her emergency contact list. They also said no police officer had come out there. I found that very odd. I mean, I know the devil's deceptive, but I don't really think he could fake an entire conversation with me. So I continued running my errands, and I received a call from the emergency contact. Again, less than helpful. All he did was talk about how she does this for attention, and when somebody shows up, she's sitting inside and just on and on and on, just berating her. 
And I finally just said, do you, can you even give them permission to enter? He said, no, so I hung up on him. Um, I called the police station back, and I spoke to the sergeant on duty. All of this had started about 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, he explained he just can't break down the door, and was there anything I could share with him? I knew just enough about Pam's life. I knew she didn't have any family close by. I knew she had dizzy spells, and she would fall a lot. That was my concern, that she had fallen and hit her head. I noted that she may have dementia because she was confused a lot. He said, ma'am, can you give me anything else? And I will never forget standing in my garage and just slumping my shoulders and saying, not to sound like a crazy church lady, but outside the spirit screaming inside of me that she is laying on that floor, I got nothing. Praise God, he said, ma'am, if I thought you were crazy, I would have hung up on you a long time ago. All of this, like I said, started about 9 a.m., and through this man's diligence and obedience, I received a call at 5 p.m. Mrs. R., you were right. Pam had been lying on her floor for two days. She was alive. They took her to the hospital. I called later that night to check on her, and to my surprise, I was asked if I wanted to talk to her. Um, even more surprised when I heard her voice when she got on the phone. I told her how surprised I was um, that she was so cognizant. And she's like, yeah, she goes, yeah, that's, I said, well, Pam, you've been laying on the floor for two days. She's like, yeah, that's what they told me. I said, okay. I said, well, um, you, know, you need to listen to what they're telling you. You need to rest up. And the next day I called to check on her. Her tone was a lot more like I had been expecting. She thanked me and said I was the only one who had called to check on her. That's when I realized that the light she needed was the light of Christ. So many people had abandoned her and had turned away. She just needed someone, anyone, to care. She was placed in a nursing facility near her family, and in 2022, she went to be with the Lord after about a COVID. I am grateful. I listened to that still small voice and prepared a package for her. And I am grateful. I continue to follow up throughout the day because I'll be honest, you guys, that was truly out of my character. I am grateful that all the people worked so hard to get to her were obedient. The glory of God shined that day, and I am grateful I got to be a small part of it. God won't require you to do anything. He cannot empower you to do. And whatever you do, he will multiply. God will place opportunities for divine encounters in front of you daily. You just have to tune into his voice and be obedient to what he's asking you to do. So if you have our questions, and I know you all might have different words. I did a lot of this out of the King James for mine. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Repentance. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why do we need to fill our house with the Holy Spirit? That's right. So the, so the devil can't got no home to come back to. We should not serve sin, for he that is 
dead is freed from sin. Walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust, desires of the flesh. The Lord has plans to prosper, bless, that depends on your version, I think, there, and not to harm you. We are to work out or exercise our, our own salvation. We're not supposed to exercise somebody else's salvation. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each may receive the things done in the, in the body.